0: Man, it's good to see all of y'all. Look a little crowded. good news is there are seats right here in front of me. <laughs> now I'm just going to stand here the whole time and preach from this one spot. If you're a guest, my name's David. I'm the pastor of the church. We're glad you're here. You're welcome to come to anything we have going on, if it pertains to you, anytime. We just love having you. Hope you always feel like you can be uh, a part of our church. We're in a series that's entitled, But God. And uh, it, it, we're going to finish it up today. It started at the first of the month. And it's based on the reality, at least to me, that uh, how many times I would just be reading through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, be reading about things that humanity have done, I'd be reading about our sin, I'd be reading about all these things, and then there would be this phrase, but God. In contrast to us, opposite of us, there is God doing something. And when you read it, you begin to realize that what God is doing is that even though we rebel against him, even though we reject him, he is always doing something to bring us back to him. He's always doing something to bring us to him in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And so in this series, you know, we've been looking at these different aspects about God and seeing some of the characteristics of God. He's a holy God. He is complete, perfect, and to himself always. But there are aspects of this holiness you begin to see, his grace, his power, his mercy. And they all work together. And today we're going to come look at the one part of God's character that I think connects to us more than any other part. The one thing that we want more than anything else from, from anyone, but especially God, is we're going to see his love. We're going to come to the book of Romans, and we're going to see the love of God. And what I want you to see from the message today and experience and know is this, that God loves us even though we reject him. And because of that love, Jesus went to the cross to bring us salvation. Even though we reject God, he still loves us. Even though you sin against him and rebel against him, he loves you. And because he loves you, Jesus went to the cross. Uh, when, you, when you read the New Testament, you see a lot about, about love. And uh, one of the verses that I quote a lot, and I always quote a lot, comes from the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. The disciples you know, were there with Jesus the 12, Except for Judas, he's gone to betray him. He's hours from the cross. And he knows that once the whole cross thing happens, even though he's coming back to life, he's not going to spend much time with them. For these 11 guys who are going to change the direction of the world, with his message. He's leaving the hands of these 11 guys. He spends his last time with them, and and he says this to them. He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. It's it's new, not in the sense that they've never heard this before. It's new in the sense that it has a freshness and a vitality to it. He says, here's a commandment I'm going to give to you. You guys need to love one another. And if you will love one another... People will know that you follow me because of that. That's how they're going to know who you are. That's how they're going to know about our faith is when you guys learn to love one another. And he said this because he'd already talking about love. It was understood that they loved God. In the the last sermon that I preached in uh, 23, that was that December 31st, just five weeks last year, a few weeks ago, I preached from uh, Mark chapter 12, which is also found in Matthew 22, when they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God more than anything. You gotta, I, hope, I hope that stay with you. Those of you who heard that, thinking, I pray about this all the time. God, help me love you more than anything. I want to love you more than anything. And then as a result of that, I want to love other people. He understood that they would love God, but they got to love one another, man. And when, when you think about what love is, we come to that verse, John 3, 16, it says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Anyone that would believe in him would never perish but have eternal life. Remember, God really does love us. The concept of love that's found in the New Testament, the word that is used is, is a different, con- the basic word used couple. is different than what you find in the world today. On a regular basis, I have people coming to me, and you know, I see this all the time now about Christians. They try to, people outside the Christian faith Try to take our terms and our, and our thoughts and use it against us. Even some people within Christianity misunderstand the concept of love. For you see, the world's concept of love, the way the world thinks about love, is sometimes they'll say, well, you know, how could God say you know, he loves people when he doesn't do this or that? They keep thinking it from themselves. But the world's concept of love is very similar to this Greek word eros, which is never found in the New Testament. But it's a very common word in the Greek language. In fact, we got our word erotic from it. We got a lot of words from it. And it's a love that comes from within a person. It can be good or bad. I mean, if I fall in love, you know, when I fell in love with my wife, Debbie, that came from within me. Now, I mean, that was, it was a great love, and I, and I did things for her, she did things for me, but it was a love that comes from within. And the shallowness of love, the pettiness of love, the selfishness from love, this whole concept, if you love me, you'll do this to me, it comes from the love that's within you. But that's not what the word we find in the New Testament means. There's a couple of words used. One word used in the New Testament is the word phileo. Um, and we, we kinda, it's a verbal form. It's the idea of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's the concept of the love that's of a friendship. It means affection. It's a great word. And, and we can have all types of affection, and that's cool. I mean, you know, you, you love your pets. There's an affection for them. You know, you can, you can love your favorite restaurant and the people at the restaurant, you can have this affection for them. But even though that's used in the New Testament, that's not the basic word. The basic word, and if you've grown up in a church at all or been to a church much at all, you've probably heard it, it's the word agape. That's the noun. The verbal form, akapao. that's the word love. And here's the interesting thing. Outside the Bible, you just don't find it. It wasn't very common at all. It just wasn't used. Now, in... The Old Testament, their concepts of love, when they translated before Christ came, when they translated, the Jews did, the Old Testament into Greek in something we call the Septuagint. They used this word agape to kind of capture the different ideas of God's love. This is used over 200 times. And so when you, you get to the New Testament, those guys, especially because they grew up Jewish, they understood that term agape. But when they began to apply it to the faith and talking about Jesus and the things that Jesus said and how he loved it came, though, with a whole new meaning. It took a whole new shape. In fact, the very best definition of that word agape or the verbal form agapao, is found in John 3.16 when it says, God so loved the world, he so agape the world, that he gave his one and only son. So here's the concept. The idea of agape does not come from within you and I. It comes from within God. It is a love that is generated by God. And when I become a follower of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm a follower of Jesus, that concept of love is then born within me, and I begin to have that understanding of love, that love always comes from God. It is a selfless love. It is a Giving love that I don't generate from within myself. Now, when you come to the book of Romans, you come to a book that at its heart is a very doctrinal book. Paul wrote this. He had not been to Rome. It's in the mid-50s. He hadn't been to Rome yet. He didn't start that church. We don't know who started it. Peter didn't start it. That church started really early, like right after Acts chapter 2. Somehow people get to Rome. You can assume it started early. We know from the book of Acts and from other things that Paul wrote before Romans. There were churches. There's a church in Rome, Christians in Rome, so they were already there. Paul was going to go to Rome. He wanted to kind of introduce himself. He wanted to say some things to them to kind of to get going there. And so Paul wrote this book we call Romans. He begins it early on. He wants to lay it out. and So in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for anyone who might believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith first to last. And then he says this, for the just or the righteous person will live by faith. And so he lays out his fundamental doctrine that salvation is by faith and we are made just or we are declared just in the sight of God. He then spends the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, in chapter 3, talking about how sinful we all are. Gentiles, to use it, doesn't matter. We're sinners. Romans three twenty-three: twenty-three, we're all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then in chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. And he talks about Abraham not being made white or declared white in the eyes of God because of circumcision or works of the law, but by faith. And so he begins to establish that to be right, to be declared right by God, to be just, to be righteous is by faith and only by faith. Having used Abraham as his example, he then begins chapter 5. And though we're going to focus on verses 6 through 9, I want to read to you Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Understand, he didn't write in chapters. We divide it this way. Here it says, therefore, the word therefore is always important. When you're in the New Testament, you got to know what the word therefore is there for. In light of everything I've said about all of our sinfulness, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, we're sinners. He's established that. He's a sinner. There, so they're all sinners. But we're believers now. And we have been justified. I'm going to talk about justifying just a second. We have done that. That's happened. And now we have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. We're no longer rebels against God. Even though we still sin, we're right with God. We have peace, but it's all through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through Jesus. He says this, we have been justified by faith. Our faith, and we saw last week, God gives us the faith that we have that saves us. We exercise it, we utilize it, he gives it to us. We have been justified. The word justified means to be declared in right standing. Sometimes that word is defined or translated righteous. And in a few moments, we're gonna be in verses six through nine, we'll see the word righteousness, uh, we'll see the word justified again. It comes from the same fundamental Greek word, context determines how it is, and it means to be declared in right standing. It's a legal term. It does not mean to be made right. Sometimes we use it interchangeably. It's no big deal in our world, but to be made right is the act of sanctification. That's a big fancy church word, and I don't even try to use it. It just means to be cleansed and be holy, to me. made right by God, our sins are forgiven. To be justified or righteous is to be declared right. It's a legal term. Put it to you this way. Let's just suppose, let's just suppose, let's just suppose I was to get a ticket. It may have happened. You get a ticket for a lot of things. You can get a ticket for speeding. You can get a ticket for running stop sign. You can technically get a ticket when you're driving down the highway in the left-hand lane and you don't pass anybody. They don't give that ticket out enough. I, a lot of times, am in the left-hand lane. You're in front of me. You ain't passing nobody. I'm going around you. And here's what happens when you go around. Here's what they're doing when you pass that person. They're doing this. They're at 10... And there are two, and they're barely looking over, and they don't look at you as you go by in point two seconds. One day, I got that ticket. I'm flying down the left, but I ain't passing nobody because there ain't nobody to pass. The officer pulls me over and says, you Elijah, you were in the passing lane. I'm saying, you got to be kidding me. Me, of all people, going to get a ticket for driving in the lane, which you pass everybody. I'm like, I'm here because if I'm not here now, I'll be here in about, oh, 10 or 15 seconds. So you got to go to the judge to pay. No, you can pay the ticket online. Let's just say you go to the judge. And so the ticket, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's 100 bucks, that was 40 years ago, let's just say. So you're out of right standing with the court because you owe money, because you offended the court. Evidently, I offended the judge somehow. So I pay the ticket, and when the judge says, you paid it, and he bangs that gavel, I have been declared in right standing with the court. The judge and I, we're good, and I'm right, and I don't owe anything. Everything's been declared. That's the way it is with God. At some point, we don't earn it. We don't don't deserve it, but God declares us right. Now, you got to put, you know, we don't pay in a ticket. That part's out the door. So that's where the analogy breaks down. And unlike the ticket, nothing stays on our record. Trust me, tickets stay on your record. But I am now, in the eyes of God, legally, I'm declared in right standing. That's what the word justified means. It's a major theme of Paul. We are right with God. It happened through the faith that he gave me, I exercised. Then in verse 6, here's what he says. Paul says, for while we were still helpless, at just the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We were helpless we're in our sin. There's nothing you can do about it. And then at right time, just the right time, there's two different words for time. One word for time, you get our term chronometer from it, like a watch. It means the exact time. So back there, there are three clocks back there. Two clocks tell me what time it is. One clock tells me how much time I have left. That's the one you care about. <laughs> and those clocks matter because it tells me where I am in the course of my sermon. For instance, right now, I am not where I should be. I've got to catch up. So I'm going to talk really fast, or I'm going to cut something out. But I'll make it. I'll get you, I'll get you that on time. That's not the word used. The word used is the word chronos, which means season of time. It's like, um, it's like the season of the year. We're in, we're in the winter season. We're in the season where the football playoffs are going on, and we're in the season where the Cowboys are never playing anymore. We're in that season. And just the right season. Not worried about the exact date or time, but it's just the right season. Christ died, when God. that season season was when God was ready, not when you and I decided, not when you and I were ready, when God was ready and he died, get this for the ungodly, the word ungodly is those who are rebelling against God, he died for all of us, all the ungodly, all the family you don't like, all the people you don't like, all the people I have to pass in that left lane, all of them, including me, he died. And here's the irony of it, Conum. And Paul uses this illustration. One will, in verse seven, hardly die, rarely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare possibly have the courage to die. Is what that means. The righteous man. This is more of an illustration. It's the same word as justified, but it's not talking about the person who is technically declared right by God. It's just saying you look at a person who does everything right by the faith, a religious person. he's talking to him back then. No one's going to die because someone is religious and right with all the law, maybe if they're really good and the idea of good is not only are they religiously good, but they do things for people, maybe, possibly. But we don't die for other people. I know there's exceptions. You know, you would die for your spouse. It's not the same thing as your kids. And policemen and firemen and soldiers, I get all that. I mean, that's not what he's talking about. He says, we just don't die for people. Man, I'm not going to die for you people. You think about the church, you think from the Methodists, i die for them? No way. It ain't worth it. It ain't worth the risk. Presbyterians don't have to die. According to them, they're either going or not. There's no, nobody, nothing makes a difference in their world. Simply a God, according to them, they're all going. Why am I going to die for them? We don't die for people. And then there's verse 8. But God, with all of that sin and, and all of those things we said, but God, he demonstrated his own love. He showed his own love for us. And that while we were in the very process of sinning, Christ died for us. But God is so different. It's just not that he died for the ungodly. Do you understand that we were in the very process of sinning? When Jesus died, they were sinning, putting him on that cross. I mean, there was the sinning, of what they were doing. But for all the sin, he died for us. He died in our place and on our behalf. The concept is substitution. He substitu- we should die. We deserve to die for our sins. That day, Christ died in the place of a guy named Barabbas. But that day, Christ died in the place of you and me, too. And he took all our sins upon him. Some people like to deny about the substitutionary death of Christ. Well, man, you might as well deny the whole New Testament. Because that's what he means. And he did that to demonstrate, to, to show the love of God and the love of Christ. Jesus' love and God's love is the same. Jesus, in uh, John ten thirty said, I am the father of one. He said, when you see me, you see the father. You can't separate the love. The love of God, the love of Christ, it compels. God demonstrated, he showed his own love. Understand, this is where agape comes from, from with him. That verse means it came from him. His own love for us, Christ for us. That's what God did. Verse 9 says, much more then. Having now been justified by his blood, we're going to come back to that. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We talked about wrath last week. We have a, I'm not going to go back over all that. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you weren't here. The, our, the, the word wrath does not mean what we think it means in our terms of our, just our absolute, unbridled, vengeful anger. It's a part of who God is. God is Holy God is loving. He's just. He has grace. He has mercy. He has wrath. He shows kindness. He's benevolent. He has power. He has knowledge. He has all those things. It's his just and holy attitude towards sin. I mean, parents, you know, we understand when your kids do things wrong, if you love your kids, at some point you have to help them understand they can't keep doing that. There's a sense of wrath. He said, we have been saved from that punishment. When Christ died on the cross, he saved us. He saves us now, but he saves us in the future. It's the permanence of that salvation. We have been, he says, justified by his blood. Now, well, I' like always said, justified by his faith. Which is it? To be declared right? Well, it's both. For understand, that because we sin, there is a price to pay. You know, Go back to that ticket analogy, there's a price to pay. I'm gonna pay that ticket. And all my life, of all the tickets I've ever had, no one ever paid the fine for me. One woman, when I had to pay the fine, would just look at me and make me feel immense guilt, like I had deprived her of something she could have got at Amazon, you know? But no one ever paid the price for me. You understand in our sin, we should pay the price? Jesus did, and by his blood, he paid that. And because he died for us, God will declare us right. God doesn't declare us right because we pay for it. You and I can never pay for it. He declares us right because Jesus paid for it. And when we trust him, and we give our faith to him, and we turn away from our sin and acknowledge him, then we are declared white right by God. So the blood, the death of Jesus' faith goes hand in hand. They're inseparable. So understand then that the cross is the ultimate example of God's love for us. How do I know God loves us? Because of the cross. How do I know God loves me? Well, the cross. When Jesus died in my place and on my behalf and took my sin, that's how I know. So, not only is the cross the ultimate example of God's love, the cross, which is the death and resurrection, that's what the cross is, is the only way we who reject God can find salvation. It's the only way. Because how else are we going to find it? If Jesus died on the cross for our sins, if that was God's way, how is God going to... Why would God save us any other way? I read something yesterday about, you know, some celebrity and all their beliefs about how we all get to heaven. I'm like, you know, that's just garbage. If, if God... He's going to send Jesus. He's going to die for us. And that's what, how he declares us right. Then there's no other way to ever get to God. Love is so important. And we forget that sometimes. I, I, I remember a story that I learned early in my ministry over 40 years ago. I have it written down somewhere, but I still remember it. it was, it's set in Chicago in the late 1800s at Moody Church in Chicago. And, uh, you know, D.L. Moody was the, the pastor and founder and all that. He was famous back then. And it's, it's this kid, this 8, 19-year-old kid just comes to church every week. And there's an usher that sees him every week. And, and one Sunday, it's like right now, this time of the year, it's just bitter cold. It's, it's one of those, it's so cold and it's so windy in Chicago that hardly anyone's going to church. And this kid walks in here. And, and the usher just looks at this kid and said, man, what are you doing here? And he, and he said, where did you come from? And he said, he told him where he lived. And he said, Kid, you walk past four churches to come here. Why would you do that? The kid looks at him and says, Because here they love a fella just a little. Here they love a fella just a little. He did all of that not because Dio Moody was preaching. He did all of that not because of the programs. He did it just because the people there like that usher just loved him. Sometimes we forget that what really attracts people to God is love. The fact that he loves what people want to know. They don't care about all the theology. It's important. They don't care about all the programs. People who are rebelled against God don't care about that, but to tell them that God loves them. He'll forgive them. They care about Billy Graham understood that. You know, if you think about Billy Graham, and, and, and most of you probably have heard him know who he is. Some of you are kind of young. And you, you've never experienced what Billy Graham and when Billy Graham, Billy Graham preached in front of more people than anyone, he spoke in front of more people than anyone has ever spoken really in front of. Just an in indirect message, not not counting you know politicians giving some speeches. I mean, he just preached billions in life, but more than anyone ever has. And and people would flood and flock to go. And 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 he's he was not a, a technically a great preacher at all. He wrote a ton of books, but none of them are all that deep. I can tell you that. i read some of them. I mean, nobody quotes him in my world. But when he preached, this is what he told people all the time. He said, God loves you. And Jesus loves you. He said, you're a sinner. he told them, you're a sinner. Don't, don't. He didn't hide it. He said, you're a sinner. You sin. And you're going to go to hell because of your sin. But understand God loves you. And he'll forgive you for all your sin. If you just trust Jesus. And he preached that time and time and time. That's all he ever preached, really. All his sermons kind of come down to that. Whatever he preached about, he'd end up on that subject. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Because that's what people need to hear. Because that's what people want to hear. Let me tell you something. We didn't love God. God loved us. We didn't love God. But he still loved us. We worry about so many things in churches. And it's somewhat important, I get it. But we worry about them too much. We worry about theology all the time. And, but you know... All the churches I've ever interviewed, and I'm I mean going to say I've not interviewed with another church since I came here yet. But all those churches, <laughs> don't take it for granted you know, they all want to know theology. And I get it, I get it, I get it. And we worry about programs. Some programs, you know, there are some churches who's had the same programs for 50 years. They stopped working 48 years ago, but your great-grandmother loved it. And there are churches who worry about their traditions and their styles of worship. We got, you know, the 830 style, and we got the 945, 11, and twelve, fifteen different style. 830 style today because Mike was gone and got Brian. So they got a little of this style, you know, and Rachel were there. They got a little of your style. You offended like 10 of them just by being there. But Brian offended all of them, so you're okay. We worry about those things. I'm not saying they're not important, but let me tell you what. It's not really what mainly matters. I mean, you think about Jesus. He didn't deal a lot with theology. It's not that he wasn't theologically correct on everything he said he did. He's God. Of course he is. He just didn't stress it. He didn't worry about programs. He didn't start any programs. Ministry, he did ministry based on love. But you know what? Jesus never did. I hear churches all the time. You know, we got to end poverty and hunger and all that. Jesus said, you'll always have poor people. He could have ended poverty. He could have ended hunger. He's God. You can bring dead people back to life. I'm pretty sure you could end that. He didn't. It's not what mattered. Not most. Not number one. He didn't care at all about the religious traditions. I mean, he fought the religious leaders because of their dumb traditions. It didn't matter. Paul, he wrote this unbelievable doctrinal book, the book of Romans, the most theological book you'll ever find. And yet you go to Acts 16. He's in prison in Philippi, And things happen, and, you know, and the jailer, everything gets loose, and he's free then. And the jailer runs to see if he escaped and didn't. And the jailer falls down in front of Paul and says, what do I got to do to be saved? He understood that. Paul didn't say, well, here's six things you need to believe. Let me explain to you the doctrine of justification, sanctification, redemption, adoption. He said, here's what you got to do, bud. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. You and your whole family if they'll trust you. That's, that's all that really matters in life. The gospels, they all talk about love. Peter writes about love in his book. Peter 1.22, love one another from the heart deeply. John's epistle and his gospel are all about love. In the book of Hebrews, this doctrinal book in chapter 13, verse one, at the end of it, he says, hey, just keep on loving one another. James in his book says, hey, you gotta love your neighbor. Jude in his book says, you are the beloved by God. They talked about love and they connected love and faith because the reason you and I can believe, the reason you and I can be saved, the reason you and I can have faith is because God loves us. So here's the thing. More than anything you need to know that God loves you and that's why he sent Jesus. Because one day you're gonna stand in front of Jesus And all he wants to know is, did you trust me? Did you follow me? Listen, you you can say, well, you know, Jesus, I had some doubts. There were some things I never understood in the Old Testament, especially. You know, I didn't. You know, I. I believed in the wrong date for the Exodus. He's not going to say, man, if you'd have just believed the right date in the Exodus, we could have made this work out. He's going to say, I don't care. You know what? When you get to heaven, you can get all that corrected. Everything you thought wrong about, all the things you didn't understand, they'll fix all that. He's going to say, but did you follow me? Oh, yeah, I followed you. Okay. it's all that matters. And more than anything, we need to tell people God loves them. So that's why he sends us. Jesus said, at the resurrection, as the Father has sent me, so send I ye. Why did the Father send Jesus? So people would know that God loved him, and that's why he went to the cross. So that's why he sends us. He says, go make disciples. We get that all messed up, and people think discipleship making involves 20 different programs, and all these steps you've got to follow. No, it means to get people to become believers. That's all. Before he left and went to heaven and Acts, he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to go witness. Just go do that. And so we tell people that Jesus loves them. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. That even though we rebelled against him, God keeps finding ways to bring us back. And the ultimate way that he did it and the final way is through Jesus. So that's why I began this message saying this, that God loves us even though we rebel against him and reject him. And because of that love, Jesus came to save us. So have you experienced the love of God in your life? Have you turned away from your sin and trusted Jesus to save you? Because you can do that right now and give your life to him and trust him. In the moment, if you want, you can come and talk to me or some of the other people standing here about giving your life to Christ. Maybe what you need to do today is turn away from your sin because you, know, you believe in Jesus, but you've been sinning a little bit too much and you need to turn away from that. Well, you need to do that. Absolutely need forgiveness. And maybe... You want to pray for somebody that you love, you can do that. If you want to join our church, you can. But mostly what I just want to encourage you to do now that this whole series is over is to walk out of here today knowing God loves you because he really does. So, Father, thank you for loving us. And thank you for showing us how much you love us by Jesus going to that cross to die in my place. He died on my behalf. And he took the price for all my sin. And he paid it. And now, because of faith in Jesus, you have declared that I am right with you. And ultimately, God, that's what we need, to be right with you. Amen. Would you stand?